welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host, Samuel Davies. In this episode, I speak with Amber Bauer, CEO and founder of Four Refugees. We speak about the ongoing refugee crisis and what moved her to support it. We also talk about what it's like to welcome refugees into your own home and how the pandemic has made an impact on the efforts that she and her colleagues are making to support frontline organisations supporting refugees. There are tons of lessons that we can all benefit from in this episode, including how to approach partnership projects and the importance of volunteers. This episode of Charity Chat has been brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Work for Good, a fundraising platform which helps charities streamline and unlock small business sales fundraising via a supporter-friendly digital commercial participation solution so that small but mighty businesses can fundraise for causes they love and charities can maximise this awesome sustainable source of income. So without further ado, here is Amber Bauer speaking with me about the group effort of helping refugees. So I'm delighted to be joined by Amber Bauer, CEO and founder of Four Refugees. Amber, welcome to Charity Chats. Hi, Sam. How are you? It's great to be here. Good stuff. Well, yeah, it's great having you here. And I'm very well, thank you for asking. It's, uh, it's a lovely, sunny, slightly mild February day, uh, 2022, that we're recording this. I guess our, some of our listeners will already know who you are and will be following your work. But for those that don't know, could you just maybe start by talking about your background and what you do now? Sure. So um, I founded Four Refugees um, coming up for six years ago. Uh, it's in direct response to Europe's refugee crisis. Um, it's the topic that's sort of little talked about now. Um, we hear about it in the news a little bit, uh, but it's actually something that's still very much at the forefront of, of sort of modern history, if you like. Um, there's still a massive crisis happening across Europe. So six years ago, I, I was like everyone else. I had the day job. Um, I worked as a chief procurement officer for a global energy company. And uh, I had quite a busy job by day, um, running a team of about 50 people nationwide and with big budgets. And um, I found myself going home on the train uh, in London and on Facebook, seeing a post called Stories from the Ground. And it was by a, a volunteer. It was by a young Dutch woman who had seen what was happening on the Greek island of Lesbos, just dropped everything, flown across there to help. And at that time... Back in 2015, there were thousands of people arriving on the islands in Greece from Turkey, um, thousands of refugees and asylum seekers coming to Europe, and there was no um, facilities for them, no reception centres, no help. Um, and so volunteers like Meryl had dashed across there to go and help. And they were. she was talking, she was a very good writer, and she, she would... Um, sort of explain her day um, online in a story of, of what she'd seen and what she'd witnessed that day. And I was reading these stories of uh, boats landing, of people being washed up on the shore, of um, children being handed to a little baby screaming as they came off these dinghies that were coming across the Aegean mm. water. And I was reading this and thinking back to my memories of a Greek island, maybe a you know holiday with my friends when I was about 21, pina coladas on the beach and, and you know, sort of having fun with beautiful sunsets and Mediterranean swims. Mm. And I'm, I'm, my brain is just going, hang on a second, how can this be 
a Greek island today in modern history, how can these people be so desperate that they've risked their lives making a crossing like this? Um, how can these people be, be not, not surviving? How can there be deaths? How can, how can this be happening today? And um, so I was going to work by day and I was reading Merrill's latest updates as I, as I headed home in the evenings. Um, and it just got to the point where I couldn't not do something. I was like, mm. if this is really happening in Europe, I just can't stand by and watch. And I didn't know how I was gonna help. I didn't know what I wanted to do to help. I just knew I had to. And so I, I came home, I had two interesting conversations with my husband about this time. I came home one day and said, hey, honey, how do you feel about me quitting my paid job uh, to find out more about this refugee crisis? Um, and thankfully, after a bit of a shocked, stunned silence, he, he was very supportive. And then not long afterwards, I came home and it was, honey, how do you feel about giving up our spare room to a refugee or asylum seeker who would otherwise be homeless? Oh, wow. <laughs> to, to which after a stunned silence, he also agreed. <laughs> <laughs> Did you did you did you think that he would be okay with that? Is that kind of was it was it a, a surprise that your husband was happy to do it? Was it a surprise to you that you were happy to do it? Do you think? I think that's a really good question. <laughs> I don't know the turn of events as they happened. I'd kind of always thought I would probably go into some sort of good calling at some point, but I'd very much thought it was going to be about the environment and not about people. Mm. Uh, I, I very much saw myself um, advocating for, for the planet or for animals. Um, and it, it took me by surprise that the refugee crisis did something in my heart that says you can't just stand by and watch. Um, and my husband is, um, is very different from me, but he knows that once I have an idea in my head, it's probably not going anywhere. And he's generally, generally, you know, he's been really supportive. So we said with hosting, we said, well, let's give it a go. And if it's not for us, we can, we can always, um, you know, stop doing it with, with yeah. no notice. And so by hosting, you're, you were talking about essentially inviting in um, a refugee or group of refugees. Yep into your home to live yeah. with you for a set period of time or or was it kind of unknown as to how long they would be staying with you it's uh it's kind of agreed as a set period of time but it always ends up unknown because nobody actually knows what the future holds sure so at the time there was a brilliant organization that still exists today called refugees at home and i'd heard about them and registered with them and so once we decided that yes uh we would offer our spare room um, got in touch with refugees at home and they sent out someone to come and see us, um, all volunteers as well, sent out somebody to come and see us who was used to going into uh, to people's homes as kind of mm. a social worker or a care worker of some sure. sort. And, and they would just check that we had the right kind of accommodation, a bathroom for someone, mm. uh, understood that if they had nightmares that we could come for help, understood how we might split the kitchen up, understand what rules we might have around the washing machine, what pets we had, just make right. sure everybody in the house House was understanding of what it meant to have a stranger live in your home with you for a bit. And was it about having separate space for the people coming in or was it about kind of um, kind of having shared space? How, how did that kind of thing work? It's both. So yeah. um, we've been hosting for six years. Um, we've we 
hosted uh, the first people that came to stay with us was actually um, an Iranian family of three. It was a mom and her two children um, mm. and they were adult children. So it was basically three adults. And we mm. were like, hang on a second, we've only got one spare room. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they stayed with us for four days and we're still in contact and friends with them today. That was oh, six wow. years ago. Wow. And then um, and after that, the, a young man came to live with us uh, who who lived with us for about six weeks. Mm. Um, and after that, a gentleman lived with us for nine months. Wow. Um, we then had, um, uh, we were asked by a local charity to, if we were willing to host a child, so somebody who was 16 years old, who was mm. age disputed by the government. So the government claimed that he was 20. And the social worker, the care worker, she knew that he was only 16. And she didn't want him going into this very adult environment. So she said, how do you feel about hosting a 16 year old? And he's pretty much like not in any legal sense but in a family sense he's our son now and wow. so was the young man that came after him who was mm. also 16 and um, both of them are, are beyond doubt family forever their kids will be our grandkids oh so. my goodness that's lovely that's yeah. so lovely I mean has it been difficult don't mind me asking has it been difficult in kind of it's been culture clashes or just individual clashes personality clashes in in the kind of the the people that you've had to stay with you or no um really genuinely and honestly we have so much fun um I'm I'm not a cook but our guests nearly always are okay (laughs) (laughs) so they like laugh at me for the lack of salt and the lack of chili not just me my husband too they laugh at us for the lack of flavor we put in our food um as they as they boil up their dishes (laughs) and all cook beautiful food and we sit with our you know pasta dish or whatever that we've cooked in 15 minutes and um so cooking is always a big one um but we've genuinely like um the, they, they're all deeply respectful of the space mm. and deeply appreciative of the environment but we just yeah. get on like family we're, yeah. we're my husband and I have just become very open we, we actually um during COVID we changed another room in the house into another spare bedroom so that we could host mm. two people instead of one <laughs> yeah so we're growing it rather than shrinking it and, and that's that's another thing as well because of course the pandemic I mean here you know we've so over the last couple of years now pretty much we've had also all measure all sorts of measures and lockdowns and things like that i can only imagine that that must have made hosting harder right in some ways uh, but we actually had a house full during hosting and it was really lovely um everybody we we played games during, during the lockdown yeah wow. we 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 had um we had at least two or three people staying with us and then at times my husband's cousin came to stay with us another friend came to stay with us <laughs> So, so we had, and we were volunteering with a local homeless charity because they were short of people. So we volunteered and everyone in the house that lived with us during that time came with me. My husband doesn't do it, but everyone else came to volunteer with me on a Friday night with the homeless charity. Um, so we had, we had that once a week um, and various other things, uh, went for walks, did exercise, took up cycling, jogging. Um, it, it, we actually had quite a lot of fun in lockdown and we always enjoyed the company. Um, the younger ones, um, Harbin was still at home with us. He was 18, 19 at the time, I think, and he was still at home with us and he found it a little bit hard. He missed his friends. Um, he, uh, but he got a job and um, both him and Moosey, the two, the two that are like children to us, they all, uh, they both worked throughout, uh, in grocery stores and doing deliveries and things. Um, 
and I guess key workers, if you like. So uh, everyone, you know, we all got on with life as best that we could. And when we were at home, we, 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 we played quite a lot of board games, actually, which isn't normally my thing. But I think everyone was a bit like that for the last couple of years, weren't they? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we did, we did a lot of jigsaw puzzles here. Yeah. But I think that's because my, my son loves jigsaw puzzle. puzzles. But yeah, Aww. I'm jigsaw puzzled out, to be honest now. But uh, I bet you are. I mean, in terms of what what is it, Amber? Because, you know, I'm... I'm I'm kind of in awe of people like you who are willing to take in complete strangers into their homes. I mean, so many of us, I feel, I certainly speak for myself, you know, we have this kind of, I think for want of a better term, kind of cognitive dissonance, you know, on the one hand, you know, I read on the news, these terrible stories about refugees that are, you know, that have died or that have, that have had to come in on a dinghy. And I get very angry, you know, when I see that our government or other governments are kind of turning them away or, or locking them up. And then I, if I'm honest, I then put that down. I go back to whatever it is, watching a Netflix show or something like kind of looking back over your life. Has there been things that you've, have you done things differently all the time? Cause this seems like quite a different thing, right? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> I think, I, I don't know if I'm honest, I don't know what it is about the refugee crisis completely. I think I'm, I'm quite well-traveled. I've been really lucky in my life to have been to, you know, I've been in South America, been in Africa several times, been to Australia and New Zealand and a lot of Asia. I'm really, really, really lucky. And I'm very aware of how each time I've been somewhere, how amazing the local people have been. Mm. And I am soul destroyed that people would come from another nation and meet anything other than hospitality from us. Yeah. I actually find it soul destroying mm. that we could be so horrible to another human being because they speak another language or practice a different religion or have a different color skin, let's say it. And I don't understand it. I don't get mm. it. I don't, mm. and I just, I'm just horrified by the injustice of it. Yeah. And so if, if I, I'm not a biological mother, I'm a mother in a different sense, but if, if I had a biological child and they, for whatever reason, found themselves in another part of the world, Mm. I would want someone to do for them what we're doing for the kids here and I would be absolutely devastated if somebody was cruel to them mean to them never mind like what these what these kids are actually being put through which is nearer to torture and rape and and drownings and near death it's like you know the least you can do is give them a bowl of food or to give them a helping hand the very least so these kids are my kids as far as I'm concerned. And there's another mother out there somewhere who's just desperately wanting her child to be looked after by someone. And that's all we're doing. And, I, and that goes for what we do with four refugees, with every single refugee or asylum seeker across Europe, whether they're 12 years old or whether they're 50 years old, they're someone's son or daughter, they're someone's brother or sister. And for whatever reason, they can't live in their home country. And the least they can do is have a helping hand to find a new life in another country. Because it's hard enough being away from your family. In your work uh, for refugees, you're, am I right, that you're working with lots of different kind of stakeholders and, and organisations, other smaller organisations as well. How do you go about choosing who you work with? And, and, and I know also you fund these groups too. How do, you, how do you go about choosing who you fund in order to support the people um, that your organisation exists to support? 
I probably started for refugees a bit naively because although I'd had a long business career, I didn't actually know anything much about the charity sector. <laughs> um, and so um, I started with kind of a blank sheet of paper, wanting to set up a charity that was very collaborative, nearly all digital, although I'm not, I, I don't have a particularly digital or marketing background, but I wanted it to be predominantly an online charity um, mm -hmm. just for ease of time really um, because we don't have a lot of capacity and a lot of people involved and um, and but being collaborative was really important so I went on my first volunteering trip in July 2016 at Camp Alexandria in Greece near Thessaloniki and uh, when I was across there I was just blown away by what the team on the ground were doing people who'd gone who'd realized what was happening before me and and, and gone across to help and I was looking at it and comparing it to my corporate career and going, wow, what these guys are doing is really incredible. They're running um, like they have volunteers that they have to manage and look after. They have um, services that they're delivering every day. They have to fundraise for the money that they've got coming in. There's no clients mm -hmm. or bill payments or invoices being paid and settled and services being paid for. They have to run vehicles um, and they have to run warehouses. Um, and on top of that, the volunteers all speak different languages and arrive at different times. Some of them stay two days, some of them stay three weeks, some of them stay three months, and they have no real control over that. And then into this mix is a camp with a thousand people in it of all ages and all nationalities who need, who are some of the most vulnerable people in the world and who need the most basic of human services and human kindness mm. for delivered to them each day. And a Greek, um, in this case, a, a Greek army overseeing the camp who are basically, you know, bureaucrats who need to understand the services that you're offering um, and accept them and, and be willing to work with them. So I'm, I'm looking at the adversity with, with which these services are being delivered and the challenges of day-to-day -day life and thinking, well, you know, I can't, I'm not going to move to Greece and set up my own NGO on the ground. So how can I help these guys the best possible way? And the most obvious way was money. Um, and then I quickly realized after Four Refugees was set up that there was an insatiable appetite by these NGOs. If, if you um, regularly funded something, a service that they were delivering for people, then they would grow and build mm. more services. Yeah, and they're always yeah. living on a knife edge of funding, always. There's no way mm. that you can take that stress away from them. So um, it was also going to be quite difficult. Um, fundraising for a warehouse or petrol costs is, is not a hearts and minds type fundraising ability. Mm. You fundraise for children and, and women in need and things and, and diseases. And, it, and it's kind of an, an easy grab for people's hearts. But fundraising for a warehouse is, is actually very difficult mm. So um, for warehouse rent. And so um, I set up uh, for refugees as an organization that would provide emergency and one-off grants that essentially when these guys, they would have their funders, when their regular funders, um, for whatever reason, couldn't provide funding for a month or something, rather mm. than closing their doors and giving up operations, we would provide the emergency funds to tide them over for the month. Right, or okay. two months or whatever it was that they needed as situations changed. Mm. Um, similarly, if they did want to grow their services, we might help them for the first couple of months until they've got regular funding in place from other sources and then, and then we'd move on. Mm. And a great source of funding for all these teams is the volunteers that come and help them. So there are there are grant making bodies and there are volunteers who do fundraisers for them and family and friends of their own. So they've all got their own avenues of how they raise money and we're just there for them when they 
when for whatever reason they're a bit short one month mm. and that's worked really really well and then we started saying well how can we um, improve on those services to be more useful to them so we started providing umbrella services to some of the charities as well um, and I generally find that um, we're not the biggest grant maker out there by any means but we tend to be very popular with them and we can offer help and, and support we can give them advice if they want it um, we're kind of like I, I like to think of it as our auntie for the NGOs so you know you, you've always got your parents to look after you but if, if you want to cropping off with someone and you don't necessarily want your parents to know you can come to us and ask for a bit of help and we'll we'll give them a helping hand and so they they they've got funding or they're working on getting funding but in the interim in these emergency situations when they're potentially they haven't got funding or they're looking to grow because of a um uh, an emergency um with with refugees coming through and and they need to be able to support those people then you're there to kind of step in for a shorter period of time to make sure that they can keep keep going keep helping yeah exactly um and we choose and we choose the um organizations that we work with we've got a registration process so as long as they are helping refugees in europe that they are predominantly run by or depend on volunteer uh, resources and um, they're still relatively small so the groups that are doing a lot with a small amount of, of money and they kind of as long as they kind of share our values of, mm. of helping everybody regardless of race religion etc yeah. um, helping everybody equally then then we'll generally accept them onto our books which means at the moment we actually have nearly 50 organizations NGOs across seven countries I think so we're mm -hmm. currently Greece Greece is the biggest but we've got Greece France and then Serbia Bosnia and the Balkans yeah. um, Cyprus Italy um, and Belgium I think at the moment right. so we we will work with these organizations in what to, to a certain extent whatever capacity they want us to help them Mm -hmm. Some of them are pretty self-sufficient and we only hear from them once a year. Um, others, um, like I'm pretty much speaking to them almost daily. Um, and it's it's what they need really more than what, what we can uh, offer. Um, and we'll help them in whatever way we can. Do you find them or did they find you? How, how does that kind of connecting with these uh, organisations work? Well, they often find us because the community is fairly small that's helping mm. refugees and we generally all know each other. And a big part of what I believe in is also that we're that we go on the ground ourselves. So even despite like during COVID, for example, I was mm. I spent a month in Chios um, in March last year and then was back in Athens for a couple of weeks in October, mm. um, across in France, I think the August before, and again in uh, November just passed. And I'm about to go to the Balkans um, for the first time in a couple of years, um, about to go back there in March. So we go, I, I go and some of the other trustees come along as well, and some of our volunteers, if they can, and go along and meet with, but also volunteer with. We roll up our sleeves and we sort in the warehouse, we drive mm. the vans, we do distributions of food and we go and actually see what our groups are doing on the ground and that helps us to adapt our services to what they most need and also helps us to build relationships with them mm. so we're, we're very much a, a relational organization um, wanting to be as involved as we can be you know at the end of the day I'm in a front room in Croydon but as, as involved as I can be from yeah. still being in the UK most of the time and, it, and in terms of the 
you, you're working with all these different groups and you say, you know, there are around seven countries, around 50 groups you're working with or have them on your books. Are you, are you um, as a kind of a funder um, of these groups, are you asking them to work more closely together or is there, or are they already doing that? Or I know that, for example, you know, we, we've talked to other, um, when we talk, for example, about grant making or trust uh, fundraising, that from the from the funders' point of view, um, they, in some cases, are looking for charities to work more closely together to to really kind of work cohesively, and, and in some cases even to merge. Um, and I just wonder, is that is that kind of the same? Are you looking at the the challenges of refugee crises in the same way with with the people that you're funding? What I found, I think it's really interesting. I'm a huge believer in collaborating and that we're stronger together and and all those kind of great things. Um, But it's not for me to tell anybody how to operate or how to organise. But what I've found Mm. is that by having four refugees in common, organisations like we try and facilitate as much um, discussion and cross-working and uh, information sharing as is reasonable everyone's mm. incredibly busy um, mm. volunteers can change over and then we lose a connection with an organization um, we've got very difficult circumstances that we're working within but just yeah. by having four refugees um, people join a community with us they don't just apply for a grant and walk away they join a community and anytime that they have a question you know if they want to try something new or implement a new service there's always a community of people that they can go to to ask who they know are in a similar position or might be able to help mm. and again some of them some of them collaborate more because of us but not because we make them just because it's been facilitated by it and they see the benefits right. and others aren't really interested. And, mm. and that's just a lot to do with personalities like it is in any other walk of life. So um, personalities, time, um, swap over, commitments, it's, it's all sorts of things. Um, but we do definitely see um, a community building amongst some people, like for example, in Greece um, for lots of very um, technical political reasons there are much fewer people on the islands now there are much fewer refugees on the islands and a lot of them have moved to the mainland where there's now a huge homelessness problem in Athens and Thessaloniki as the two main towns so a lot of the groups who were helping on the islands have moved to Athens and between themselves and through us they've been able to collaborate and to discuss and to fill gaps and you know if someone if one organization is delivering diapers and they Baby milk, another organization will be delivering food, and another one will see a gap and say, uh, we need to deliver clothes and, and all the rest. Um, so there's there is collaboration amongst the groups because nobody's got any resources to waste, mm. nobody's got any extra people or extra money or extra uh, premises, extra vehicles. Um, everyone's running on a shoestring, doing everything they can to help a large number of people. Um, so we, we do what we can within that mix and to the extent that they want our help. What challenges do you face in working as a funder of organisations who are maybe delivering projects for your beneficiary group? And how do you ensure that you're able to report back to your funders in a compelling way? I'm not sure that we do all of those things brilliantly, um, partly because we're quite low resourced ourselves sometimes. And so it's always a challenge. Uh, 
and, and I think it is a really important one, but like we, we work on complete transparency. If you go onto our website, you will see under impact every single fund, that, every single grant that we've awarded. Yeah. Uh, the value of it, who it's gone to and what it's what it's provided and how it's made a difference to people. We're very, um, we have no uh, bureaucracy within our organization. If someone makes a donation, um, that donation will be on the ground helping somebody within a matter of days, if not, if not days, then weeks, but it will certainly be very, very fast turnaround. Yeah. Um, and we've, we've often, um, you know, the, the, the biggest challenge for us is obviously raising money. And there's, there's lots of reasons for that in our sector, partly because the refugee crisis is politically sensitive. Not everyone feels how you do when they hear about deaths in the channel mm. and, uh, or elsewhere in the Mediterranean. Um, so it's it's still it remains a controversial topic, which gets a lot of bad press um, from from the from news organisations and from governments. And for some reason, the governments of Europe have decided to have a race to the bottom of humanity when it comes to the refugee crisis. Mm. Um, they they they're all in competition for who can be the most mean, most cruel, the most hostile. And and it's something that I just don't get and I don't understand and mm. definitely don't agree with. Um, but that means that we don't have a natural, um, you know, people on the street aren't naturally empathetic to a refugee because of all that they've heard and the rhetoric that comes through. Um, so it makes it a very, a very difficult um, sort of um, topic to raise money for and to, to make people aware of. And it's also quite complicated. You know, at the end of the day, this is actually a global crisis. What do people know about why a woman has left Cameroon or about why a man can't live in the Democratic Republic of Congo anymore? They might know why someone's left Syria and Afghanistan, but what do they actually know about the other um, nations? Um, you know, we, we hosted a couple of um, our kids were from Eritrea, and I've generally found that nobody knows where Eritrea is. They <laughs> might do. They might know. They generally don't know where it is. They don't know what the capital city is. They don't know what language they speak. And they actually suddenly realize that they know absolutely nothing about Eritrea, mm. um, just as an example. So it's, it's very difficult when somebody doesn't know why an Eritrean person should need protection. It's very difficult to sort of ask for help for them. Mm. Um, so it's, it's, not a, it's not a straightforward, like it's a huge challenge, probably bigger than I ever realized it could be, and certainly going on for longer than any of us ever thought we'd be involved for. Um, and there's there's less and less people joining the movement um, to help refugees. Um, COVID obviously hasn't helped, yeah. uh, but it's it's a struggle in that respect too because the people who are helping have been helping for six years now, and burnout is something that people talk about daily. Mm. Um, it's 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 a hard it's a hard topic in a hard situation, but we're not going to stop because we believe in it just so passionately. <laughs> that this well, is and, and I guess I guess also you know from. I suppose for, for you and for those kind of organizations that are working on the ground, you're, you're seeing the impact of that work, aren't you? I suppose it's the challenge, certainly I've, I've faced at some of the charities I've worked at, which haven't been refugee charities, but maybe it's a similar thing where, you know, it's, it's harder, the, the, the more people, the message or the stories or the case studies go through that potentially the less impact it has you know, on the ears of those people you're telling it to, right? So if, for example, yeah. if I if I go and see, or, or if I have the opportunity to see the impact of the, of the charity that I'm working for supporting, then it's it's probably going to move me to to give more than if it's, you know, the, the story of a friend who saw something or the friend of a friend who saw, you know what I mean? That's that kind of, yes. um, 
diminishing returns in a way. So I guess, and but I suppose then you've got things like social media, you've got maybe videos and, and photographs and the case studies. I mean, these stories, you know, you telling the stories earlier about the, the families that you've met um, is very moving. And I suppose that's kind of, that's the basis of what you're trying to convey to, to your funders and, and, um, and, and maybe the, the basis of what your, um, your partners are conveying to you. Is that right? Yeah, more or less, Sam. I mean, you've got you've got the most you've got people in the world who've been persecuted in their home country that can't, um, for whatever reason, can't live in that country anymore, mm. who then leave, which is a massive challenge in itself. You're away from your community, you're away from your family, you might be at any age, you don't speak the language of the country around you, and you don't necessarily understand like what your rights are or um, what process it is that you need to be in at this point or what mm. your options and choices are. Um, and then you find that everyone around you is completely against you and nobody is willing to help. Mm. And how can anyone think that that's okay mm. <laughs> for any mm. single human in this world? Yeah. But we do, we do have this um, enormous challenge of there's lots and lots and lots of stories of refugees out there, some really good news stories, mm. um, some amazing stuff that people have achieved who come from a refugee background. But it's, there's always this challenge because there's so much content about everything out there is how do you actually get that in front of somebody and how do you make them read, listen, um, understand, comprehend. Mm. And, and the volunteering community before COVID was quite big and quite forceful, especially amongst younger people, but not only amongst younger people. And people from um, America and Australia and right the way across Europe would come across to, to Greece and France and actively volunteer in their tens of hundreds of thousands, you know, and, and thousands. Um, mm. And unfortunately, COVID has stopped a lot of those volunteers from moving around. And so you've got less and less and less people telling personal stories um of their interaction with the refugee crisis or with a family or with a person to tell their kind of retell their story and their own experiences and their own emotions mm. um, and added into that I mean certainly the last couple of volunteering trips I went on my camera was firmly in my pocket there is nothing more horrendous feeling than seeing somebody in one of their lowest points of their life and going do you mind if I take a picture Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Our, our photography, like for all of the volunteer groups that I'm now working with, just I, I can't think of any that have exceptions to this. It's no, no photography. Mm. And, and to be honest, as a volunteer, you're so busy. There's so few of you and you're so busy helping so many people that there's no time for pictures anyway. And so these powerful images that we got in 2015 and 2016 have almost mm. disappeared. There are a couple of kind of photographers, actual formal professional or wannabe professional photographers who still try and take some images as best they can when they're on the ground. But we've really lost um, a lot of the powerful imagery and the videos that were being shared yeah. in the earlier days. And it doesn't mean the situation has changed. It's just that the respect for the privacy of the people involved in it has, mm. has risen substantially. And, and it's just not something any of us feel comfortable with anymore. Um, a lot of... A lot of volunteers won't tell a second story. They say it's not my story to tell. The, the refugees need to speak for themselves. But I, I'm not sure I completely agree with that because the story needs to get out somehow. I'd, I don't care who tells it as long as yeah. there's permission to tell it. It's like it needs to be told. It's a very difficult uh, balance, I guess, isn't it? Because I suppose on the one hand, you want to be respectful 
um, of those people who have been through these awful things. And then, as you say, the, the flip side is if you if you really want to get more support from presumably Western audiences as, 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 as much as the people in the countries where the refugees are coming from and, and, uh, and arriving to, then, then you need that for one of a better term kind of collateral to, uh, to, you know, get move people, don't you? I mean, I suppose, you know, there's, there's a, until recently, um, I wonder if, you know, the vast majority of people were thinking that all these refugee crises were over because of course, I think back to, was it 2014, 2015, there was a lot around the Calais, the jungle um, in Calais, which I think was, that was something that, like thousands of refugees there at Calais. And that got quite a lot of coverage. And then that was bulldozed down, I think, wasn't it? And then that kind of went quiet. And then there was that awful um, story about the young, was he a Syrian child? That, yeah, the Kurdish-Syrian child called Alan Kurdi. Right, who who washed up on the beach, and I know that was you know that image was plastered around everything, wasn't it, on all the newspapers, and that was really affecting. And then since then, until I think late part of last year, when there was this new crisis on the border of Poland and Belarus, which was recently reported, it, it felt like there's a gulf of a few years where you just didn't see much in the news about refugee crisis. It might just be me. Maybe I'm just I just don't have my finger on the pulse. No, it's totally true, Sam. The the we got, I mean, even when I started, I mean, I thought that I would, I thought I could get involved politically, maybe it was the beginning of 2016. And I thought mm. maybe, maybe there's something I can do from the inside to help this situation. As it turns out, I'm, I've discovered I'm definitely not political material. But at the time, I thought maybe there's something I can do from from the inside of politics. But about that same time, um, shall we mention a few words here? Brexit, Trump, uh, <laughs> COVID. I mean, in, in the years that have passed, our, our news has been consumed by other things. Mm. And the refugees, um, the refugee crisis is still very much um, happening. And in many ways now, when, when COVID started, for example, we anticipated, we were all terrified of a COVID outbreak in a camp. They're overcrowded. People can't wash their hands. Um, there was no, like nobody had PPE. We couldn't give them face masks and nobody could social distance. And all these new things that we were all being told to do, there was no way anybody in a refugee camp could do those things. Um, so we were all terrified of a COVID outbreak and deaths. And that isn't what happened um, for which I'm eternally grateful and thankful and, and surprised. Mm. Um, but what happened instead is that the, the lockdown meant the movement stopped. And without the um, international volunteers coming to the places where refugees are at, uh, you know, to be completely honest, the governments have gone completely heinous. And mm. they've started to do things like, um, like the pushbacks that we're hearing about in this country now, um, like border brutality, like clearances. Um, and if someone was trying to treat um, like 20 dogs, like any of the way that, that any of these border force and controlling organizations and governments, if somebody was trying to treat dogs this way, there would be absolute uproar across Europe. Yeah. But for some reason, um, the way that humans are being treated at our borders has become utterly brutal and, and, and honestly law-breaking. And no one's really doing anything. There are organizations taking different governments to court. Of course there are, but these things take a lot of time. And it's only really NGOs and grassroots groups that are doing it. Everyone else is turning, um, you know, pretending that they, they don't know it's happening. 
Um, and so the, 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 the cruelty and the brutality has increased um, because there's no fewer people there to document it and witness mm. it and to report it to the world. And we, we didn't see that coming. We, did, we were too naive, I guess. You know, our brains don't think that way. <laughs> well, it was unprecedented, wasn't it, really? I, I think, you know, for, for so many people, and I guess, you know, we're, everyone's trying to adapt to COVID. I mean, for, for you and, and the work that you're doing and all of your kind of project partners, are you, do you feel that there's anything coming up or there are kind of ways that you are trying to adapt more to maybe the current political environment or the current media environment and and you know and the and uh, and COVID as well, are there things that do you kind of do you have a strategy or, or some ideas around how your your work might change to try and you know deal with the new reality? Yes, yes, and no. I mean, we're we're so busy firefighting that strategy yeah. sometimes seems, seems feels like an alien word to us. Mm. We we know that for the past six years we've been um, we've been keeping people alive so that they can make it to the next stage of their life. And over the last couple of years, it feels like that's stepped up a notch. Where The homelessness issues, um, the absolute uh, poverty that people are now in, mm. um, there's changes happening to all the laws across all the lands, but, but Greece in particular, that mean that hardly anybody is getting any state support, despite the European Union giving them over a billion euros to help wow. refugees. Yeah. Very few of them are now able to have any kind of housing. And by housing, I literally mean a tent or some sort of, you know, mm. they call them ISO boxes, but think caravan. And um, so there's there's people who aren't even allowed to stay in the ISO boxes. The ISO boxes and camps are sitting empty uh, whilst people go homeless on the street. Oh um, the food has always been horrendous in the camps. I've never heard mm. anybody really say a good thing about it. Mm. Small portions, um, no greenery, no, no healthy proteins or, or sort of good food within it. The food has always been pretty bad, but now they're not even entitled to that food. Um, they're, they're taken away from the medical systems. They're taken away from any kind of support or help. And so the NGOs are picking up the slack of that and trying to do all they can just to get through each day, mm. keeping people with their, their literally their basic necessities of life so that children and humans and adults and kids don't, don't die on the streets. Um, and within that environment, um, it's, it's hard to also do um, the social posts, the videos, the... <laughs> The, the podcasts, the networks, yeah. the um, yeah. TV yeah. interviews, and, and and arguably very few people are asking about it. You know, there's there's mm. very little interest. Um, and so we're, you know, strategy-wise, in, in this country, there's the new border and immigration bill being proposed, which is utterly heinous, utterly horrific in every sense. Like, there's different organizations opposing different paragraphs of the bill. Mm -hmm. But I can't distinguish. It's awful. It's criminalizing someone for being an asylum seeker. It's, it's threatening to put them into prison for four years simply for coming here in, in an irregular means. But there is no legal or safe way to come to the UK as an asylum seeker. There's none. Is this, is this the same bill that, that criminalizes people helping refugees crossing the channel? It, it attempts to, what, what it's done is quite a subtle change within the bill that says, uh, previously it said that um, if you helped someone cross for gain, and now it's changed it to take away the words for gain. So it's essentially anyone helping. The, mm. the advice that I've been given by someone who knows far more than I do is that it doesn't actually criminalise um, 
organizations that are helping refugees right, like right. we obviously can't become smugglers and we never would we of don't course. you know none yeah. of us none of us want anyone crossing the channel either no. but um but but it doesn't criminalize people for providing food to mm, um, mm. refugees or i think it, it specifically excludes organizations that have been set up with the charitable aims of helping yeah. the refugees yeah. so it, it doesn't go that far but it is certainly what what was connected to the rnli teams when they yeah, said Hang on a second, no, we're gonna yeah. and very bravely said we're gonna rescue people regardless because that's what we're yeah. here for absolutely um and and good on them for saying that we need mm. more people to say that because yeah. laws aren't necessarily right <laughs> no no well and and we we have influence don't we and i think when things are when the injustice is out there i think it's down to our sect to really kind of be out out there and and fighting for what's right you know and i think a lot of people listening to to this podcast will probably have the same view um that i do which you know it is uh it is shocking to hear that there's so much need and that you know politically and and, and media and individually that there's so much more that can be done to help these people and that um as you put it you know if we were in the same situation if our child was in the same situation we would want the country that they go to to help them absolutely so, yeah i dare well, any parent to say otherwise and i was i was going to say amber if um you know what can listeners do to learn more about your work and about the work that you know you and your partners on the ground are doing to help these people um, we would love them to visit our website. We've got a new one going live this week uh, for refugees.org. Um, we would love people to show an interest in volunteering. Um, they can volunteer with us in the UK, helping with fundraising or me social media content or whatever. Um, there's various things they can do here or, of course, with any of our partners on the ground. They generally have a minimum volunteering period, so you probably find two weeks um, is the minimum for most organisations. Sometimes it's as long as three months. Um, but if people are able to volunteer, and I think the, the biggest thing just in day-to-day -day life is just to not believe everything that you read or see if mm. someone's being horrible about, um, when they're generalizing about refugees and asylum seekers, think of them as your next door neighbor, your kid's school mm. teacher, um, your brother's best friend. It's like, these are just human beings who are just like you and I, um, great sense of humor, love cooking, want to get a job, aspirations of, you know, becoming millionaires and owning houses, just like everyone else, <laughs> and, and uh, having their own children one day and, and, and then being your children's friends in school. So please just think of them as humans um, that, that just need, you know, a, a friend um and and just do your best to not listen to the rubbish that, that that people try and portray about about refugees and asylum seekers and to keep an open mind and if you can sign the petition support the letters the open letters <laughs> oppose the bills um that try and declare something different amber bauer thank you for contributing to charity chats thank you very much for having me sam big thank you there to Amber Bauer for sharing her insights, knowledge and expertise with us here on Charity Chats. Amber strikes me as someone who lives by the courage of her convictions and I was quite in awe of her, her husband and people like them who do so much for those in need and dedicate their lives to help others. Amber makes this sound so natural and common sense and yet many of us though moved by seeing the terrible circumstances of other people's lives are not moved to act in the same way or to the same extent. 
What is it that moves some to do what many of us would never consider doing to help others? Can we be inspired by an article, video, photo or story to dedicate our lives in such a way? Or is this reserved for a small minority of people who have this courage? For many of us working in the charity sector, a part of our challenge is distilling this passion and commitment down into compelling information that we can communicate to bring others to our cause. This conversation with Amber made me think more about the entrepreneurialism that we have in our sector. Setting up uh, for refugees just seven years ago, she and her colleagues are supporting 50 organisation partners now across seven countries. Supporting such a range of partners, all working in difficult circumstances, is no easy task. And yet Amber and her colleagues are continuing to provide this support. Amber talked about her organisation as providing emergency and one-off grants to give breathing space for charities responding to events on the ground or seeking to grow their services. One of the challenges for Amber and her project partners is that the pandemic has reduced the levels of international volunteers who support so many of these grassroots refugee initiatives. International volunteers, as well as providing much-needed resource on the ground, also provide vital funding. And this can serve as a reminder to us all, I think, that... Volunteers are our most dedicated of resources, of supporters, and we should do all we can to hold on to them. The pandemic may have reduced the numbers going to help refugees, as it has with volunteers working in charity shops and a whole host of other volunteer roles, but I hope that this will change and that the experience of seeing the work and useful, uh, feeling useful uh, and getting stuck in will bring them back to it when COVID restrictions allow. Amber talked about For Refugees' work as a funder, and it was good to hear that they're able to do this to fit in with the organisation partners. Amber said they will work with these organisations in whatever capacity they can to support them. As a funder and a collaborative organisation, supporting projects in other countries, getting out and seeing what's happening on the ground and getting stuck in to organising the warehouse and driving the food deliveries is refreshing to hear. We've spoken a lot on the podcast over the last two years or so about the direction of travel for funders generally, especially trusts and foundations, and uh, moving to be a more flexible form of funding. And I hope that this grows to give already challenged charities the ability to more easily apply funding where it's most needed. Amber made me think about how we can move people to support our causes and the challenge that indifference plays in how some people look to the refugee crisis. We spoke about the cognitive dissonance that many of us might experience when we see a moving request to support a cause but then quickly move on to something else. Taking photos and video video of people in dire straits is understandably often inappropriate and has to be handled very sensitively. The respect for the privacy of refugees has increased, Amber said, and a lot of volunteers who don't want to tell the stories they hear for that same reason. And yet without compelling images to help tell those stories of those beneficiaries, the struggle to raise funds is then all the more difficult. Governments of Europe could be seen as being in competition with each other for how badly they're treating refugees. It did make me wonder about the sector's role in influencing our community and through that community then shaping the narrative and even direction of government policy in the future. We talked about how the press also reported on the refugee crisis as 
and how that's lost much of the, its original enthusiasm, especially since the pandemic and Brexit has taken the airwaves over. It seems that we hear less and less from the media about the ongoing refugee crisis, and it seems like another job for our already challenged sector to raise the profile of this very human catastrophe. So thank you, dear listener, for getting this far with us. We hope you enjoyed this episode and continue to enjoy the podcast. We'd love to hear from you either way. It's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors. This episode of Charity Chat is brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Work for Good, a fundraising platform which helps charities streamline and unlock small business sales fundraising via a supporter-friendly digital commercial participation solution so that small but mighty businesses can fundraise for causes they love and charities can maximise this awesome sustainable source of income. also like to thank Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit. Magda Axmit for our beautiful website. Check it out at charitychat.org.uk and Forest of Fools for playing throughout the show and for playing us out right now. That's it from me. Keep on doing what you can. Speak to you soon. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Thank you.